0: It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Good morning, everyone, or afternoon or evening, wherever you are on November the 4th, historic day. Uh, We are, of course, uh, as I speak, still waiting for the outcome, the formal outcome of the American election. The great American environmentalist Bill Kibben famously said about nature, nature takes forever. And it seems as if this election is taking forever. Hopefully, we will end it eventually, or at least the result. Um, speaking of environmentalism, uh, we've had a number of shows uh, focusing on the environment. We did a great show with Mario uh, Alejandro Ariza about the environmental catastrophe in Miami, the disposable city, Eric Holthouse's is... Uh, Book *A Future Earth, was a big success. We talked to Hannah Tester, the, the teenage activist, anti-plastic activist, and Scott Russell Saunders, the, the writer on Ways of Imagination, essays about the environmental decay. Uh, today, uh, we have one book with many books in it. Uh, the New Yorker, which, of course, you're all familiar with, has come out with a collection of writing about climate change and the environmental crisis called The Fragile Earth. It's co-edited by my guest today, Henry Finder, who is also. Um, the, are you the managing editor, Henry, at the New Yorker?
1: Uh, I'm, I'm the editorial director.
0: Editorial director. Does that give mm-hmm. you uh, more or less power than the managing editor? You, you've co-edited it with um, David Remnick. He's the what editor in chief? He is the editor. Okay. Well, you're, you're certainly a you're a big name and a big power at the New Yorker, uh, David. Uh, t- t- to start with, uh, very briefly, The New Yorker is, of course, a very powerful magazine, an enormous voice and a great deal of followings trusted by the liberal intelligentsia. Why did you commit so much time and resources to putting out the fragile earth?
1: Well, it, it's something that was really um, an idea that seized um, David Remnick in the past 20 years. I think he's really seen it go from being uh an issue to something that's greater than an issue it's not a concern among other concerns it's kind of the concern and that sense that this is the greatest kind of existential threat that we face and the the challenge of journalistically rising to that uh threat um and responding in a way that is intelligent and engaging, you know, has been um, a big concern for him and for all of us at the magazine. So it just seemed like the right moment to, to um, come out to kind of gather material that we've run since uh, Bill McKibben's classic uh, End of Nature um, in the late 80s and take stock.
0: Henry, we'll come back to to Bill McKibben uh, later, but um, talk to me about this environmental crisis that you cover in so many different ways. It's a very, very rich book, some remarkable writers. Many of the leading New Yorker writers are contributing to this volume. Um, What is the crisis, at least in your mind, as the co-editor of of this volume?
1: Well, it's interesting how uh, terms have changed from, um, climate change, global warming, uh, to what we now typically call the climate uh, crisis. Um, and th- the phrase climate crisis does capture something, uh, which is the, the the nature of something that is looming and irreversible. Um, the complex knock-on effects that we see um, entailed by this steady, uh, irreversible rise in greenhouse gases, Uh, the ways in which, um, um, you know, beyond the usual kind of um, heating effects and global wilding, uh, crazing effects that we will observe, you have all sorts of important kind of secondary political and social effects as well. a point that uh, Betsy Colbert, who's been very much in the lead of coverage for us in the past um, 15 years, is you really can't understand the uh, crisis in Syria without situating it in the context of a super drought that that country had experienced. So when we look at the origins of the civil war there you know, we think of it in terms of things we care about. We think of it in terms of freedom. We don't think of it in terms of food. And yet, this was a time when, as a result of this freakish, incredibly severe drought, farmers across the country were slaughtering their livestock, unable to uh, t- to to preserve them. When people were uh, genuinely famished, and the and the social instability that that um, entrained had all sorts of consequences, which means, you know, you can kind of follow it on to the um, um, mass immigration, the political consequences that's had in Europe, and so on. You can see similar instances in the Maghreb region of Africa, and you will be seeing more of it in places like Bangladesh and India and so on. So the uh, the kind of political upheavals that can come from Greenhouse gas emissions with just a few intermediate steps is something that we need to be very mindful of. The point is that it is not like uh, uh, something that can be cabined in the realm of ecology. Well, I don't care about ecology. That's what you care about. No, we all have to care about it because it is not something that is containable. It's something that spills over in every single realm um, uh, pertinent to our existence on this planet.
0: Yeah, Bill. As as um uh, uh as we speak, um your 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 coverage or the cover of the New Yorker is of course about the election, and, and I'm struck with two very contradictory things happening in the world. As you argue, and and as certainly is reflected in the book, the environmental crisis is by definition global. Yes, um, the the Syrian example you use is, is very striking. I remember reading that piece; it was an eye opener. And your book really does cover the world. And yet, on the other hand, we have this retreat into xenophobia, into suspicion, this reaction against globalism and and global institutions. Mm -hmm. Do you see these two things going hand in hand as being the essential reason for our current environmental crisis? I mean, it's as much a political crisis as a physical one.
1: Yeah, it's certainly a powerful compounding problem it's one of those um you know, vicious cycles that you see, you know, as when you know the Arctic regions melt and the it has an effect on the albedo and the amount of of of, of solar reflection that happens, and therefore you have more uh warming in consequence, and so too, a crisis like Syria, although uh uh likely impelled by the climate crisis then has these uh, uh consequences of you know um accelerating the rise of xenophobic regimes that you know have uh, little interest in the kind of international global uh, network um, treaties and relations that we need in order to combat the problem and so- too
0: often those regimes themselves reject very exactly. idea of an environmental crisis.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: Um, talk to me a little bit about Bill McKibben, uh, the, a remarkable man, perhaps the most influential uh, writer on the environment over the last 50 years. He has three, uh, three, uh, three essays, long essays, actually, in your book. Uh, David Remnick, your co-editor at The Fragile Earth, described him wonderfully, I thought. he He, he writes Bill and he's writing about Bill McKibben. Bill, yeah. Bill McKibben, early on in his his years at the New Yorker, when he started and he was influencing the magazine and, and and creating a readership for for these issues, he says he writes. Bill McKibben had the laconic bearing of an Episcopal novitat but worked with the metabolism of a hummingbird. Tell me a little bit about McKibben. What's he like to work with?
1: Bill McKibben is the person who, more than anyone else, really um, um, pioneered the journalistic coverage of of um, global warming. When, in the late nineteen eighties, uh, James Hansen spoke before Congress and basically sounded the klaxons, it was Bill McKibben who heard, when many people did not, and who wrote a very long, intricate, and at the time, controversial piece um, um, uh, called, indeed, The End of Nature, uh, which subsequently became a book of that title. Mm.
0: And And you begin the the volume with that. And it is exactly how
1: how this volume begins, because it is how, I mean, The New Yorker has had an extraordinary history of environmental coverage. You know, you think of Silent Spring, for example, Rachel, Rachel McCarson's, Writings as well about
0: about. Do, do you um, think that uh, is in c- can be can be described in the same class as, as 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 Carson as as an influencer on this? I mean, Carson of yeah. course is seen as the the founder writer of the movement. Uh,
1: I do. I mean, I think I think there are important distinctions to be made between um, uh, some environmental traditions, you know, associated with uh, the Sierra Club, for example. Um, which were more focused on the maintenance of a pristine wilderness and um, the kind of um, enormous urgency that attends the message that Bill McKibben has been trying to get out. And when he first published on this, he was condemned as an alarmist. Um, People thought it must be completely overblown. Um, Bill McKibben stuck with it. He stuck with the science, uh, and he stuck with the message.
0: Um, right? It requires right. some kind of insanity, doesn't it, to do this? You've got to be a combination of a busy bee and a priest to, to achieve this sort of thing. Is that fair? Yeah, the novitiate. That's probably part, partly true. Um, You've got to be a bit crazy. a prophet. At the beginning, no one believes you. Exactly, yeah.
1: The prophet is someone who um, speaks the truth even when it is unwelcome and often enough finds... Um, an audience that catches up with him when the terms and nature of the catastrophe becomes clear. And, and Bill McKibben has certainly lived through that passage.
0: Henry, you, you, your magazine is read, I think, primarily by an urban audience. You're, of course, called The New Yorker. Whenever I read or think of your magazine, I think of New mm-hmm. York of Manhattan. Is there any contradiction between the very urban nature of your magazine and this focus on global warming and the environment?
1: Well, I mean, there is the argument made by David Owen, for example, that um,
0: uh, Manhattan is actually rather green. Uh, A wonderful piece, uh, quoting it here, Green Manhattan everywhere should be more like new york if 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 they could of course the world would be a very different place
1: yeah on a, on a per capita basis if you took everyone in manhattan and you suburban sprawled them you would have a vast increase in the carbon carbon footprint so there is actually a lot to be said for um urbanization that allows um uh the kind of aggregation of resources and um, um, you know we're not heating uh, seven million different houses uh, in order to uh, deal with seven million you know households so I, I don't find it contradictory um, exactly um, and again this goes to the real difference between the kind of sportsman like fishing and hunting you um, Valorization people have of a pristine wilderness, and this particularly urgent crisis that has to do with greenhouse emissions—that is everywhere and nowhere. Uh,
0: I mentioned earlier that we had Scott Sanders on on the show, who who writes the Other America, uh, the the Trump's America, although he's not a Trump supporter. Can environmentalism bring America together, or is it just another thing that is dividing us? Uh, Of course. Whoever wins the election is likely to be Biden. This issue of bringing America back together is going to be something that obsesses us, I think, over the next few years. I I, I
1: think it's important that we don't have a kind of circle the wagon attitude toward this and that we do as much as we can to bring people in. Uh, You see this among uh, many evangelicals, for example, who speak in terms of stewardship, uh, the stewardship of God's creation. And... In their own register, uh, they're able to convey the importance of being a good shepherd, being a good steward. Um, um, you know, to people who um, may, in other ways, be quite different from the typical, you know, urban sophisticate. So, I, I think that there is a way to reach people uh, where they are, and I think that there is a way. Um, Uh, to show that this is a a challenge that we face together. It's not a challenge for other people. It's a challenge for all of us together.
0: Henry, do you think that your book reflects that? Or do you think there are? You, you of course, have many critics. Some people see your publication as the sort of the altar of of the liberal aristocracy. Um, Have you included any Trump supporters or uh, evangelicals in this collection?
1: Well, it's um, we do not have any um, Trump supporters, as far as I know, uh, in among our um, contributors here. And um, you think that's a weakness? Uh, well, I, I think it's a weakness on the part of the Trump ideology <laughs> um, that um, it has uh, attempted to persuade people that the Paris Accords are uh, something that, you know, unfairly burdens America. <clears throat> I think that it um, it casts a false kind of quid pro quo in terms of economic prosperity and environmental um, uh, sustainability. Uh, so in as much as the volume of that particular loudspeaker can be um, modulated, I think we'll all
0: be better off. I hope uh, I hope you're right on that one, mm-hmm. uh, Henry. Uh, d- talk to me a little bit about um, you. Call her Betsy Colbert. Her pen name is Elizabeth Colbert. I remember reading the Sixth Extension. I thought it was one of the best books, certainly on on the environment I've ever read. On the best book, one of the best, one of the most revealing and and emotional yeah. nonfiction books. Mm-hmm. She's also with, I think, McKibben, the star of your collection. You end with a, a wonderfully powerful after afterword by her. Yes. What does, what does Betsy Colbert bring to the party? How, how, how do you uh, summarize her contribution to this? Theme? Yeah,
1: Elizabeth Colbert is someone who, um, you know, she arrived at The New Yorker as a superb journalist. She'd written for the uh, for The New York Times for many years covered city hall, covered national campaigns and so on. And she recognized the challenge, the journalistic challenge, which is to find story in something that is not inherently narrative. But the great challenge of global warming is, it's a process. What is there to see? You know, you're watching paint dry. Um, uh, to, To learn that average global temperatures have increased by, You know such and such a degree celsius over some interval of time that's not an event that's not like a two-car collision or a Mm. or a ghastly murder
0: as mckibben says nature takes forever so the challenge of the of, of the of the writer is to make it appear as if it doesn't
1: is to find the story in the process is to find the narrative in what is otherwise a kind of diffuse cataclysm because the danger is, you know, we is the, the proverbial you know um, uh, frog in the in the slowly warming pot, where there's no particular moment when you feel the urgency. And I think that because she's such a skilled writer, she has a lovely tone, that kind of witch hazel clarity of her prose, and also the ability to find particular incidents and people so that the science, which can be quite intricate, is wrapped around stuff that we can relate to, stuff that involves human beings on a glacier in the Greenlands, say. That is, uh, you know, it's something that she has a rare gift for. Um, And the combination of being deeply immersed in the uh, ecological science and Deeply skilled at storytelling, right? A, yeah, and also
0: really reminding people, story. I think, of um, of the immediacy, the crisis that we're facing. We you end the book, the collection, with her uh, afterwards, and she quotes James Hansen, who you mentioned earlier, yes. uh, another leading voice. And 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 Hanson uh, tells, I don't know if he's telling her or he's speaking. Oh yeah, she he tells her. Uh, when she asked him if he had a message for young people. And, and, and Hanson says, the simple thing is, I'm sorry we're leaving such a fucking mess. Now, we can swear, I think, on uh, on on this show when it comes to the environment. This idea of leaving a mess, of course, comes to the the, the, the core issue facing all of us of, of what to do about it. Um, Henry, we had, as I said... Uh, uh, Hannah Tester, the teenage anti-plastic activist, she has the four, hour, the five Rs: refuse, reuse, reduce, recycle, raise awareness. I, I, is that something that you share uh, in terms of fighting this crisis?
1: Yeah, I think I think we need uh, to recognise that the choice is between a bad outcome and some very uh, worse outcomes. Um, there's no. Getting back to some pre-industrial idol. Uh, we've done so much damage
0: there. No, there was no such thing as a pre-industrial Italy. We we had a, actually a, a French uh, uh, a, a French scientist on the show a few weeks ago who talked about the environmental catastrophe of the pre-industrial age. So that's also an illusion. Uh,
1: the, you know, there was a time when alligators swam in the in the South Pole. Uh, there was. Uh, you know, this this tiny planet has undergone tremendous um, climatic upheavals. Uh, but the urgency that confronts us now is how to curtail the worst outcomes. Um, how, having reached the point that we have, regrettably, um, to slow it down, flatten the curve, and prevent much, much worse outcomes, worse in terms of ecological diversity, worse in terms of the um, humanitarian consequences of many of these um, climate induced cataclysms. Um, uh, you know, we can model these things, but at, at a certain point, we need to take Meliorist actions. We need to. Meliorist. What
0: do you mean by that?
1: Meliorists uh, in the sense of the importance of harm reduction even if we cannot immediately you know we, we cannot tomorrow eliminate carbon emissions
0: let me decode that uh henry mm-hmm. going back to hannah's refuse reuse reduce recycle raise awareness it seems yeah. to me and correct me if i'm wrong uh, providing mm-hmm. there is indeed a biden presidency we we face two ways of fighting the crisis, either with this Green New Deal, which is a pretty radical approach, which he says he's not committed to anyway, or as you would say, a more meliorist, a more piecemeal approach. Which would you prefer? And perhaps which with the New Yorker? I, don't, I know you can't speak on behalf of New Yorker, but if there was an editorial position, what do you think it would be? Look,
1: the, the Green New Deal itself is, in some sense, meliorist. You know, we can say it's radical, and it is by comparison to uh, the do nothing policies that we've had in the past four years. Um, but even everything that is on the table in some sense starts from where we are. Um, and that sadly is a, is a reality that we have to recognize unless we go in for, you know, I don't know, some sort of future geoengineering outcome, which is wildly premature to talk about. We know uh, from uh, people who have devoted their lives to the subject that there are low-hanging fruit. There is a tremendous amount we can do along mm-hmm. the lines of that collection of ours um, that would have a significant impact on slowing carbon emissions. Um, and with a combination of, of um, measures for conservation and measures for um, uh, resource substitutions so that we are not generating energy from fossil fuels any longer. You know, We can um, arrive at a place where, in some period of time, that looks close to carbon neutrality. Uh, but the point is not to be dismissive of any measure that brings us there big or small we can hope for big in the absence of that we can at least make progress and not continue to make um um,
0: henry let me tie you down metaphorically at least um you talk about low hanging fruit we all agree stuff needs to be done yeah maybe a couple of things kind of people watching this who really care about this stuff will have Mm -hmm. read your book and it's a wonderful book, but it's it's still a more of a literary book than a political book. It describes the crisis in the wonderful prose and writing that you specialize in at The New Yorker. As I said, you talk about this low-hanging fruit. Give me two or three things that people can do immediately. Is it, as you suggest, there's one piece in your book about the impossible burger, the the vegan, the new vegan food that substitutes meat? Is it giving to your local environmental group? Is it buying a Tesla or an EV? Um, is it reading the book? Two or three things that can be done in the next few months that, that, that are, are realizable for ordinary people if they care about this crisis so much.
1: Well, one thing to bear in mind is every two years there's another congressional race. Uh, this year it seems as if the Republicans have made some inroads and not to make the issue merely partisan. When you are choosing your representative in Congress, if you bear this in mind and convey to your representative that this matters to you, you're more likely to get national policies on a national scale um, that can make serious inroads in terms of regulations for um, emissions, regulations having to do with vehicles, having to do with power plants, um, having to do with uh, building efficiencies, and all the rest. The um, uh, we as individuals, you know, do not implement large um, scale. Um, you know, uh, technological remedies, but as a society, we can do so. We have done so. We uh, know that when we make fuel efficiency standards higher, that Detroit and Tokyo will meet them. Um, and so on down the line. Uh, likewise, when it comes to livestock, you know, it is true that, that cattle are a significant contributor here uh, as individuals, but also as uh, as a society, we can take measures to uh, diminish those um, pernicious inputs. But I would say um, uh, something to convey to representatives on a level of the State House and Congress that this matters urgently to you. Um, is one way of converting your personal preference into
0: national policy there you have it uh i promised you a break from politics but henry Vender from the new yorker brings us back he's the editor of this marvelous new collection the fragile earth essential reading i think for all of us concerned about the environment henry uh in these strange times a particularly strange day today as we wait for uh, the outcome of the election, I know you're in Princeton, New Jersey. What else should people be reading in these strange times, in addition to your book?
1: Well, I think they should certainly be reading the one book that you mentioned, which is the Sixth Extinction, which is so powerful uh betsy culbert's um last book. I know she's working on a book right now
0: in the White Sky, which I think is coming out pretty soon. Yes, so well, you, think, Betsy if you're watching this, we need to get you on our show yes
1: uh. So you should also buy her next book, and if you can pre-order that, uh, you, might, uh, you might be well served uh, by doing so. Um, Falter is the, uh, the name of Bill McKibben's last book, uh, and that would also, I think, make, make uh, helpful reading. Um, you know, more generally, uh, in terms of um, understanding um, the political crises of our time, You could probably do worse than read, I don't know, a book by George Eliot, like Felix Holt, or some of Trollope's um, Palliser novels uh, as well, all of which convey a kind of deep and textured human understanding of political processes, um, because ultimately an ecological cataclysm is gonna have to be averted through political measures.
0: You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, We'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at Lit Hub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.